Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unk, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unk podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unk, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about Margaret Lucas Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, who was a prolific poet and playwright and natural philosopher She published multiple works under her own name at a time when more women were starting to publish their own work, but they were almost always doing that anonymously. She also published at least five major works on natural philosophy, and that makes her the most prolific woman publishing on that subject in the 17th century. She wrote so much on such a range of subjects that you can find just dramatically different reads on her depending on where you look, like if somebody's focus is mostly on literature, she's described like as a poet and a playwright. But if somebody's focus is mostly on science, she's described as a scientist. Uh, She also lived through a really tumultuous period, including the English Civil Wars, the Interregnum, and the Restoration, and then all of that was happening during the Scientific Revolution. Just to level set, We're not going to talk as much about her work in philosophy, specifically, in this episode, because even though there are most certainly people who think that is the absolute most important part, there is just so much of it, and it evolved so much over time, and so much of it is discussed in relation to the work of other philosophers, it just was like nested side trips of definitions (laughs) to make things uh, even understandable if you don't already have a background in it. Um, If that's what you're into, though, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy has an entry on her that is almost 25,000 words long. So you can run at that. (laughs) That'll keep you busy for a bit. Then you will be fully, fully up to date on her philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the future Duchess was born Margaret Lucas in Colchester, Essex, probably around 1623. The records that would have documented that were destroyed during the Civil Wars. She was the youngest of eight children of Thomas and Elizabeth Lucas. The family was wealthy, but Thomas did not have title. He had enough money that he could have purchased a title if he wanted to, but he thought that titles should be earned. According to Margaret's autobiography, her oldest brother, Thomas, was born before their parents were married because her father 
had been banished for killing a Mr. Brooks in a duel. This seems to have been a typical duel over a matter of honor, but Brooks had been a favorite of one of Queen Elizabeth I's courtiers, so Thomas was forced to leave, was uh, allowed to return only after Queen Elizabeth had died, and King James I allowed him to come back. I feel like we've had a few of those where it's like, Elizabeth did not like a person. They They went away. away. James I, it's cool, come back. (laughs) Yeah. Charles Firth, who edited an 1886 edition of a book containing this autobiography, speculates that this may really have been George Brooke, who was executed for his role in the byplot in 1603. But if that's the case, none of this makes sense. The byplot was a plot against King James in the first year of his reign. But George Brooke was executed, not killed in a duel, and all that happened after Queen Elizabeth had already died. Whatever the exact circumstances were, though, the younger Thomas was born in about 1597, so he would have been six years old or so by the time his father was able to return and marry his mother, at which point everyone seems to have treated him as a full member of the family and one of his father's heirs. The elder Thomas Lucas died when Margaret was only about two, and his estate was divided up among her mother and her three surviving brothers, who were Thomas, John, and Charles. Elizabeth Lucas never remarried, and her inheritance from her late husband included a portion that was meant for Margaret and for each of her sisters. They would be given that portion either when they got married or when they came of age. They had enough money that they all lived pretty comfortably. Margaret described her mother as always living within their means, but still bringing them lots of honest pleasures and harmless delights. Margaret and her sisters also received a very basic education through private tutors. In addition to subjects like reading and writing, they were taught things like needlework and dancing. Margaret did not really like her studies, but she did love to read and write and to design her own clothes. She was far more interested in fashion of her own design than in clothes designed by anyone else. As an adult, she gained a reputation for having a lavish and unusual style of dress, which incorporated elements that were thought of as men's fashion. People described her wearing things like knee-length coats and breeches, or, in the words of Sir Charles Littleton in 1665, during a visit by the Duke and Duchess of York, she was, quote, dressed in a vest and instead of courtesies, made legs and bows. Yeah, this, uh, this got some... Commentary, I had a hard time finding any portraits of her that showed really what this would have looked like. Um, The Lucas family, though, divided their time between London and Colchester, and they seem to have been really very close and loving with each other, even to the point where Margaret's married sisters often lived with their mother when she was in the country. But they also seem to have kept most other people outside the family at arm's length. They were staunch royalists, and as the civil wars began, most of their neighbors, especially in the country, were parliamentarians. For a super quick recap on that, the English civil wars grew out of long-standing grievances between Charles I and Parliament, along with issues involving religious freedom, tensions between Protestants and Catholics, and disagreements on how England, Ireland, and Scotland should all be governed. These wars were interconnected with the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which involved all three nations and are sometimes described as the British Civil Wars. As we said earlier, Margaret's family were staunch royalists. Her brothers Thomas and Charles both became officers in the Royalist Army, After her brother John tried to rally supporters and horses to take to the king in August of 1642, a mob attacked his home, which is where their mother and sister also were. This mob ransacked the house, killed deer on the property, destroyed crops, desecrated the family tomb, and stole the horses. John was briefly imprisoned after this, but ultimately fled and became a colonel of horse in the Royalist Army. As all of this was brewing, Margaret went to Oxford to join the court of Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of Charles I. She doesn't spell out her reasons for doing this, just that she'd heard that the queen didn't have as many maids of honor as she used to. 
Some sources have interpreted this as Margaret wanting some independence from her family or thinking that she might be safer with the queen. But the family also had some concerns about it because of what Margaret described as her bashfulness. Here is her own description. Quote, I am naturally bashful. Not that I am ashamed of my mind or body, my birth or breeding, my actions or fortunes, For my bashfulness is my nature, not for any crime. And though I have strived and reasoned with myself, yet that which is inbred I find is difficult to root out. But I do not find that my bashfulness is concerned with the qualities of the persons, but the number. For were I to enter into a company of Lazaruses, I should be as much out of countenance as if they were all Caesars or Alexanders, Cleopatras or Queen Dido's. Neither do I find my bashfulness riseth so often in blushes as it contracts my spirits to a chill paleness. She also says the best remedy she ever found for this was to believe that everyone she meets is wise and virtuous, because the wise and virtuous, quote, censure least, excuse most, praise best, esteem rightly, judge justly, behave themselves civilly, demean themselves respectfully, and speak modestly when fools or unworthy persons are apt to commit absurdities as to be bold, rude, uncivil, both in words and actions, forgetting or not well understanding themselves or the company they are with. Her family's concerns about whether she was going to be okay leaving home, they were not entirely unfounded. She also wrote this, quote, In truth, my bashfulness and fears made me repent my going from home to see the world abroad, and much I did desire to return to my mother again, or to my sister Pi, with whom I have often lived when she was in London, and loved with a supernatural affection." So when Margaret told her family that she wanted to come home, her mother convinced her that it was going to reflect poorly on everyone if she left the Queen's service so soon. And in the end, Margaret wound up staying there until after she married. And we're going to talk a little bit about that after we have a quick sponsor break. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. 
In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. In 1644, the English Civil Wars escalated and Queen Henrietta Maria fled to France. She left her newborn daughter, Henrietta, behind. Henrietta's birth had been really difficult. It wasn't clear whether she would survive, but she did. She was reunited with her mother after about two years. Margaret Lucas, though, went with the queen when the queen fled. She described herself as not being good at learning languages beyond English, And it doesn't appear that she learned French even while living in France and serving a queen who had been born in Paris. But there also would have been other people connected to the court in exile who spoke English. One of these was William Cavendish, Marquess of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He had been in command of some of the forces at the Battle of Marston Moor, where the Royalists were badly defeated on July 2nd, 1644. After this defeat, Cavendish had fled, first to Hamburg and then to Paris. In addition to his military career and six years in the House of Commons, Cavendish was an expert horseman and a horse trainer, and a poet and a playwright, and a patron to people like Ben Johnson, John Dryden, Thomas Hobbes, and Rene Descartes. His first wife, Elizabeth, had died in April of 1643. And while most of their children were grown up and married by the time she died, they also don't really seem to have approved of his second wife, which was Margaret Lucas. They got married in 1645. Various accounts describe Margaret's family and Queen Henrietta Maria as being opposed to this match as well. Among other things, William was 30 years older than Margaret. But from Margaret's point of view, he was a good fit for her. She wrote, quote, My lord, the Marquess of Newcastle, did approve of those bashful fears which many condemned, and would choose such a wife as he might bring to his own humors, and not such a one as was wedded to self-conceit, or one that had been tempered to the humors of another, for which he wooed me for his wife, and though I did dread marriage and shunned men's company as often as I could, Yet I could not, nor had the power, to refuse him. By reason, my affections were fixed on him, and he was the only person I was ever in love with. She went on to say, quote, For it was not amorous love. I was never infected therewith. It is a disease or a passion or both. I only know by relation, not by experience. Neither would title, wealth, power, or person entice me to love. But my love was honest and honorable, being placed upon merit, which affection joyed at the fame of his worth, pleased with delight in his wit, proud of the respects he used to me, and triumphing in the affections he professed for me. William seems to have really loved Margaret and encouraged her pursuits, buying books for her, tutoring her, and generally just supporting her interests and ambitions. William and his brother, Sir Charles Cavendish, also organized a salon that came to be known as the Cavendish Circle in the 1640s, holding gatherings with people like Thomas Hobbes, René Descartes, philosopher and mathematician Pierre Gassendi, and intellectual and polymath Marin Marsen. Margaret met some influential philosophers and scientists at these gatherings, but she maintained that she didn't speak directly to them about anything of consequence. Since many of them spoke French, she also would not have been able to speak with them without someone there to translate. Margaret hoped to have children, and as time passed without her becoming pregnant, she and William consulted with at least two doctors, Richard Ferrer and Sir Theodore Meren. Marin seems to have recommended treatments for both her physical and her mental health, including what was described as melancholy. Eventually, Marin, who was the court physician, advised her to discontinue treatments for infertility. 
Margaret seems to have tried to treat herself as well, with things like fasting and bloodletting based on her own readings on science and medicine. Some of her writing about this came across to me as maybe having some food disorder, uh, some disordered eating, like, connected to all of her anxieties and bashfulness that she described. Eventually, Margaret and William left Paris and moved to Antwerp, where they lived in a house that they rented from Peter Paul Rubens's widow. And over the next few years, Margaret experienced a string of losses while separated from the rest of her family. Her mother died in 1647, and her brother Thomas was wounded in battle and died in 1648 or 1649. Her brother Charles was in Colchester when it was besieged by parliamentarian forces in 1648. This siege lasted for more than a month, and as is often the case, conditions became truly horrific. This was complicated by the fact that, for the most part, the people of Colchester were on the parliamentarian side, but they were trapped with the royalist army, which put its own needs ahead of everyone else's. Meanwhile, the parliamentarians besieging the town refused to allow provisions to enter. This siege only ended after the royalists were defeated at the Battle of Preston in 1648. Afterward, a parliamentarian war council found Charles Lucas guilty of treason and sentenced him to death. He was executed by firing squad and was immediately seen as a royalist martyr. King Charles I was executed in January of 1649, and later that year, Parliament declared England to be a commonwealth. The new model army, which was led by Oliver Cromwell, embarked on a violent reconquest of Ireland. The Scottish Parliament had declared Charles's son, Charles II, to be king, and Cromwell led an invasion of Scotland as well. Fighting continued with all of this until Cromwell's victory at the Battle of Worcester on September 3rd, 1651. This was the final battle of the Civil Wars, and afterward, Charles II fled to France. During the Civil Wars, Parliament had established committees to deal with the estates seized from royalists and others who had opposed Parliament, known as delinquents. In 1651, Margaret returned to England because she had heard that her husband's estates were being sold, and there were provisions for delinquents' wives to be granted an allowance from the sale. William could not go with her. If he did, he would have to renounce his loyalty to the crown and swear fealty to the Commonwealth, and he was not willing to do that. But Margaret didn't have to do that because, as a woman, she wasn't even considered capable of doing it. So she traveled with William's brother Charles, who had been ordered to return to England and occupy his estates there, or else they would be confiscated. Margaret's efforts to get this allowance from the sale of William's estates was both lengthy and unsuccessful. The committee told her that William was, quote, the greatest traitor to the state, and that since she had married him after he had already been made a delinquent, she was entitled to nothing. She was in England for about 18 months working on this, and during that time, she wrote and arranged for the publication of her first two books, Poems and Fancies and Philosophical Fancies. Both of those were published in 1653. She had meant for all of that writing to be published as one volume, but Philosophical Fancies just was not ready in time. Later on, William would help Margaret arrange for the publication of some of her books, but she handled these two on her own. And we noted at the top of the show that she published these works under her own name at a time when most women who published were doing so anonymously. But beyond that, she chose a highly respected publisher for her work. It was Martin and Alistair, who later became the publisher for the Royal Society. And while most women who published in 17th century Britain were publishing smaller pamphlets meant to be circulated mostly among people they knew, Margaret was publishing books that wouldn't be out of place in a fine library. They were full-size books, beautifully bound, and for some of them, she also commissioned artwork by Abraham von Diepenbeck for the frontispiece. This was unusual, not only because of her gender, but also because of the content of the books. While Poems and Fancy sounds like a lighthearted collection of verse, it was really a work in which she used 280 poems arranged into five parts 
to explore subjects like physics, medicine, philosophy, and ethics, and her own scientific theories on vital matter, which rested on the idea that all matter was intelligent and capable of organizing itself. These were not considered appropriate topics for women to publish on. It's true that she had more power than most women to do something like this. Her husband was in exile and their finances were a mess, but she was still a marchioness who had her husband's full support. But even with that in mind, she was breaking ground with this work. Margaret returned to Antwerp in 1653, and she and William remained in exile until after the restoration of Charles II in 1660. During that time that they were still in exile, Margaret continued to learn and to write. She published her brief autobiography, which was A True Relation of My Birth, Breeding, and Life, that was published in 1656 as part of Nature's Pictures Drawn by Fancy's Pencil to the Life. This autobiography was something that she wrote in part to counter claims that her husband had written all of her work for her, while also crediting him and his brother for their encouragement and mentoring and what she had learned. We are going to get to Margaret's life after they return to England after we have a sponsor break. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding Finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. In 1660, after the restoration of Charles II, Margaret and William Cavendish, Marquess and Marchioness of Newcastle-upon-Tyne were able to return to England. 
Some of William's lands were returned to him, including Bolsover Castle, which the couple rebuilt and refurbished, including building a riding house there. For a while, they lived in London, but they didn't really enjoy life at court, so they retired to William's estates at Welbeck Abbey, which was not far away from Bolsover Castle. William also bought Nottingham Castle in 1663 or 1664 and built a mansion there. Margaret was increasingly involved in managing these and other estates, while also writing and publishing her work. The book Orations came out in 1662. She published her first volume of plays, just called Plays, that same year. These had been written earlier, but the original manuscript had been lost at sea. In 1664, she published Sociable Letters, a set of fictional letters on a range of topics, including science, medicine, and literature. Philosophical letters followed that same year. In 1665, William was made a duke, so Margaret became a duchess. And in 1666, she published Observations on Experimental Philosophy. In addition to her other work in the previous few years, she had studied Greek and Roman philosophy, relying heavily on Thomas Stanley's The History of Philosophy for that, since it was in English. She had also explored the work of her contemporaries in philosophy and science, including Thomas Hobbes, Rene Descartes, Robert Boyle, and Robert Hooke. Observations on experimental philosophy drew on all of that knowledge to outline her thoughts on things like perception, art, various plants and animals, colors, the nature of heat and cold, atoms, telescopes, medicine, chemistry, anatomy, and more. It is a very long and wide-ranging book. Although this was a work of nonfiction, she included an appendix called The Description of a New World, called The Blazing World. The Blazing World was also published as a standalone volume two years later, and this was a work of utopian fiction, sometimes described as an early work of science fiction, that is also a commentary on her thoughts on science, philosophy, and society. In Blazing World, a merchant falls in love with a woman and steals her away. Quote, but heaven, frowning at his theft, raised such a tempest as they knew not what to do. The ship is blown off course to the North Pole, and all the men on board freeze to death. But this lady is saved by the light of her beauty, the heat of her youth, and the protection of the gods. It turns out that Earth's North Pole is conjoined to the pole of another world, and when the ship approaches our own North Pole, it is forced into the other one, which is a world populated by sort of human-animal hybrids or anthropomorphized animals. Quote, some were bear men, some worm men, some fish or mermen, otherwise called sirens, some bird men, some fly men, some ant men, some geese men, some spider-men, some lice-men, some fox-men, some ape-men, some jackdaw-men, some magpie-men, some parrot-men, some satyrs, some giants, and many more, which I cannot all remember. She's eventually brought before the emperor of this world, who takes her as his wife and gives her, quote, an absolute power to rule and govern all that world as she pleased. Then what follows is an account of the empress's rule, and it works as a commentary, as we said, as on science, philosophy, and social issues, including the idea that a strong, stable monarchy is crucial to a peaceful society. The year after she published Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy, Cavendish was invited to a meeting of the Royal Society, which had been established in 1660. Some accounts read as though people were so impressed with her work that they invited her right over. But this work was really controversial, and the invitation was one that she sought out, and which her friend Walter Charlton lobbied for. Charlton was one of the Royal Society's original members, along with Margaret's brother John, who was another person who had tutored and mentored her in subjects like science and philosophy. Some of the controversy was because of Cavendish's gender. She was the first known woman to be invited to a Royal Society meeting. She really may have been the only woman to attend one in the 17th century. Women weren't allowed to become fellows of the Royal Society until 1945. But the content of this work was also controversial. In addition to it being highly unusual and almost scandalous for a woman to be publishing this kind of scientific and philosophical work, 
she also directly criticized the work of some of the Royal Society's most prominent fellows, including, for example, Robert Hooke's work on microscopes. As we said earlier, Cavendish was living during the scientific revolution, and science was becoming its own discipline, which had a focus on experimentation and measurement, and Cavendish really questioned that very idea. These criticisms were in both the main body of the book and in The Blazing World. In the main body, she discusses how flawed lenses or bad lighting can distort the image seen through a microscope and that that can lead to incorrect conclusions. She also expresses her belief that microscopes can represent only exterior shapes and movement, not the interior workings or motions. She compares men looking through microscopes to boys playing with bubbles. In Blazing World, the bear men use microscopes to show the empress the head of a fly and various lice and mites, but she questions their conclusions about the fly. Maybe what they're seeing are actually tiny pearls and not the insect's eyes. She questions the purpose of the study of lice and mites. What use is it if their observations don't lead to a way to keep people from being bitten? Overall, Cavendish's criticisms of people like Robert Hooke were dismissed by many of her contemporaries and some people in much more recent eras kind of wrote it off as the silly nonsense of a dilettante who did not know what she was talking about. But Cavendish was knowledgeable about microscopes. Her husband had a whole collection of them. She had one of her own. And she had read the latest writings on the subject, including having read Hooke's entire Micrographia, which was published in 1665. Her observations on the problems that could come from badly made lenses and poor lighting were well-founded. And even her observations that seem wildly incorrect, like suggesting that the lenses of a fly's compound eye might really be pearls that had nothing to do with vision. Those are based on her sense that a person's own biases and knowledge can lead them to draw the wrong conclusion from a simple observation. All that said, Cavendish was well-known at this point with a reputation for idiosyncratic behavior and distinctive dress, and now this highly controversial book. So her visit to the Royal Society on May 30th, 1667, was something of a spectacle. Samuel Pepys wrote about it in his diary, quote, I find very much company in expectation of the Duchess of Newcastle, who had desired to be invited to the Society, and was, after much debate, pro and con, it seems many being against it, and we do believe the town will be full of ballads of it. Anon comes the Duchess with her women attending her. Among others, the Ferrabosco, of whom so much talk is that her lady would bid her show her face and kill the gallants. She is indeed black and hath good black little eyes, but otherwise, but a very ordinary woman, I do think. But they say sings well. The Duchess hath been a good, comely woman, but her dress so antic and her deportment so ordinary that I do not like her at all. Nor did I hear her say anything that was worth hearing, but that she was full of admiration, all admiration. Several fine experiments were shown her of colors, lodestones, microscopes, and of liquors, among others, of one that did, while she was there, turn a piece of roasted mutton into pure blood, which was very rare. So we talked in our episode about Samuel Pepys, uh, about he could be kind of a creeper. <laughs> <laughs> we, we read a passage from his own diary where he talked about creeping on this woman in church until she stabbed him with a pin. His diary details multiple instances of him going around London trying to get a glimpse of her, saying at one point that, quote, all the town talk is nowadays of her extravagancies. On May 10th of 1667, he saw her coach, but he couldn't get close to it because there were, quote, a hundred boys and girls running looking upon her. Later on, he also talks about reading her 1667 biography of her husband, saying it, quote, shows her to be a mad, conceited, ridiculous woman, and he an ass to suffer her to write what she writes to him and of him. I have thoughts. They are unkind. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have anything to say about the substance of anything that she wrote at all, except for that one sentence. The rest of it is mostly about what he thinks of her demeanor and her clothes and her appearance and 
etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mostly the things that I have to say about him that are unkind are also not fit for this podcast. <laughs> Controversies and judgments continued to swirl around Margaret Lucas Cavendish and her work until the end of her life a few years later. She died on December 15, 1673, at the age of about 50. Her death is described as sudden, but sources don't name a specific cause. She was entombed at Westminster Abbey on January 7, 1674. The inscription at the base of the tomb reads in part, This duchess was a wise, witty, and learned lady, which her many books do well testify. She was a most virtuous and a loving and careful wife, and was with her lord all the time of banishment and misery, and when he came home, never parted from him in his solitary retirements. Her husband was too unwell to make the journey, but he did collect and publish letters and poems in honor of the incomparable princess Margaret, Duchess of Newcastle, in 1676. He died on January 22nd of that year and was entombed at Westminster next to her. Margaret Lucas Cavendish's gender and her eccentricity and the fact that she argued against some of the most prominent and respected philosophers and scientists of her lifetime meant that overall people did not take her work seriously or seriously study it for centuries after her death. She was written off as Mad Madge of Newcastle, although that nickname seems to have been coined after her lifetime. And that continues well into the 20th century. Virginia Woolf gave this very mixed description of Cavendish in her 1925 Common Reader, writing, quote, Nevertheless, though her philosophies are futile and her plays intolerable and her verses mainly dull, the vast bulk of the Duchess is leavened by a vein of authentic fire. One cannot help following the lure of her erratic and lovable personality as it meanders and twinkles through page after page. There is something notable and quixotic and high-spirited as well as crack-brained and bird-witted about her. Her simplicity is so open, her intelligence so active, her sympathy with fairies and animals so true and tender. She has the freakishness of an elf, the irresponsibility of some non-human creature, its heartlessness, and its charm. And although they, those terrible critics who had sneered and jeered at her ever since, as a shy girl, she had not dared look her tormentors in the face at court, continued to mock, few of her critics, after all, had the wit to trouble about the nature of the universe, or cared a straw for the sufferings of the hunted hare, or longed, as she did, to talk to someone of Shakespeare's fools. Now, at any rate, the laugh is not all on their side. It's really only been in the last few decades that more people have started to study Cavendish's work as anything other than just the rambling or dabbling of an eccentric aristocrat. The International Margaret Cavendish Society was established in 1997, and several scholarly critical editions of her writing are either newly published or are still in the works. Scholars approaching her life and work today, often working through the lens of feminist or queer theory, have reinterpreted her plays as original and transgressive closet dramas meant to be read instead of performed, rather than earlier uh, interpretations, which just dismissed them as scattered works that were unstageable because she was bad at writing plays. More recent scholarship has also approached her philosophy as important and compelling on its own, rather than being simply derivative of other people's work. At the same time, some aspects of her work continue to be contradictory. Sometimes Cavendish is described as an early feminist. She definitely carved out a place for herself and lived outside the bounds of what was expected of her gender. And some of her writing is focused on women in roles of power or leadership or women creating communities with each other. She also criticizes men's treatment of women and the restrictions on women's place in society. But at the same time, there are various places where she describes feminine traits as inferior or describes women as superior because they can use their beauty to control men. And to some extent, she was herself contradictory. She talked so much about this profound bashfulness, to use her word, and that really affected her whole life. But she simultaneously made it clear that she had an ambition to become famous. 
And yet in the work that was part of that fame, there's also this thread of self-deprecation a lot of the time. It's almost like she's apologizing for even existing. Some of this is because she was aware that her lack of access to a formal education meant that her work was different and would be judged differently. So we will end on a poem that reflects all of that, which was part of the conclusion of Poems and Fancies. I language want to dress my fancies in, the hairs uncurled, the garments loose and thin. Had they but silver lace to make them gay, they'd be more corded than in poor array. Or had they an art, they would make a better show. But they are plain, yet cleanly do they go. The world in bravery doth take delight, and glistening shows do more attract the sight. And every one doth honor a rich hood as if outside made the inside good. And every one doth bow and give the place, not for the man's sake, but the silver lace. Let me entreat in my poor book's behalf that all will not adore the golden calf. Consider, pray, gold hath no life therein, and life in nature is the richest thing. Be just, let fancy have the upper place, and then my verses may perchance find grace. If flattering language all the passions rule, then sense, I fear, will be a mere dull fool. She's a fun one. She is. Uh, sometimes that uh, that verse is printed with the title of, uh, like, I think, an apology for the poems in this book. <laughs> Something broadly apologetic like that. I have some listener mail to take us out. It is from Corrine. Corrine said, Hello, Tracy and Holly. On your behind-the-scenes episode about pies and the Gallaudet 11, you were wondering if motion sickness got worse with age. And the words of my dance teacher popped into my head. I'm in my mid-40s and have started taking an adult tap class. It's been close to 25 years since I've taken a dance class. And I've been pleasantly surprised at what my feet remember. Goodness knows my brain hasn't retained very much. In this week's class, we were adding several steps to our routine, and they required multiple turns in a row. Since most of us are over 30, we were having trouble practicing the steps over and over Not only was the world spinning, it took longer than I remember to get back to normal. Before teaching slash reminding us to spot, the teacher said our ability to spin decreases as we get older and that us oldies had to be careful. I wanted to take offense, but it proved to be true. (laughs) (laughs) I understand this feeling. Anyway, thanks for all you do. Your podcast is one I can usually have on while I'm chauffeuring my kids to all their activities. They roll their eyes when I put on a podcast, but they get sucked in and learn something, too. I'm attaching pictures of my dog, Buckeye. We adopted him at the beginning of the pandemic, and we're not sure how old he is. He's incredibly stubborn and have decided that I am his person. Buckeye's gotten so ridiculous that sometimes when my kids take him for a walk, he decides he's done. He'll lie down and refuse to move. My kids have to call me so I can talk to him on the phone. Only after hearing me tell him that he has to keep walking will he get his 70-pound booty up and keep going. Corrine, thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, Holly is laughing with the most delighted laugh right now. I have such a dog crush on Buckeye. Like, I love an obstinate, slightly spoiled dog. I love it. Look at this. (laughs) I know, he's so cute. Um... Yeah, uh, I have a friend who has started dog walking um, as a job and has lots of stories about uh, various dogs who were at some point like, nope, done. I'm done with my walk. Benito. We're not home yet, but I'm finished. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you want, I'll tell a very funny version of one of those in the behind the scenes this week. Okay. So thank you for these pictures and this story. Uh, Yeah, I, I had trouble spotting even when I was a young person. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it just seems it seems totally reasonable to me that as we would get older, that would get more difficult and our bodies would have a harder time with it. Uh, we've gotten a number of emails on that base, same basic topic of uh, saying, yes, yes, many of us as we get older have more trouble with things like getting dizzy and uh, being motion sick and etc. So... 
If you would like to send us an email, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.